Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate that. Um, We are continuing our look at the genealogy in Matthew's gospel as we begin our study of that gospel. And so what we've gotten so far, we're taking a look specifically at the women who are mentioned in that um, genealogy, and, and because I believe that, that it is saying something about these women, that they are all Gentiles, and they all have kind of mm, questionable past, let's say. And, and there are rumors at the time about Mary, that Mary may have slept with a, uh, a, a Roman soldier. And why does that ro- And that's why Jesus was conceived. And, and why is that? Well, it's because people didn't really believe in virgin births. People weren't fools. People understood where children came from, and they'd never heard of a virgin birth before. So there had to be some explanation, right, for why in the world this happened and how it happened. And so the rumor was that Mary had slept with a Roman soldier. And so I believe that Matthew is, is saying some things here. He's saying multiple things with this genealogy and, and particularly with the women that he highlights. So what we've gotten down to so far is Tamar, who, what was, who had children by Judah, who was her father-in-law. Covered that the last two days. If you want to hear that, go back and do that. Go back and listen to those. So she had two children, Perez and Zerah. And then Perez is the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, Rahab is somebody we know. We know her from the book of Joshua. I can't make all this fit as far as timing is concerned. That's that my only concern with this salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, it is I, I don't see how you get to that point, but that's fine. But <clears throat> because the timing is so wrong, because Rahab comes into the story at the time of the conquest of the land. She comes in in Joshua 2. So you've got all of Joshua, all of Judges, and then to the book of Ruth, And so it's hard to get to this point for me, but it's clearly the same Rahab. There's no way in the world Matthew throws a random name like Rahab in here without meaning that Rahab, the one from Joshua. So he skips, I believe, some generations, but it's odd that he says that she was married to somebody named Salmon and that she was the mother of Boaz, who is then the father of Obed by Ruth. And then Obed's the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David the king. So this shows her as only a couple of generations, previous, or three generations actually, prior to David. Well, that, I, I can't make that work, but I don't have to. Um, I, I don't know exactly what Matthew's trying to accomplish with the genealogy, but I know this. He's not saying something here that wouldn't be commonly accepted among the Jews of his time. So I'm not taking any issue with Matthew at all. Just because I can't square the circle doesn't mean that it's not able to be done. The odd thing, though, is Jewish lore attributes, um, well, it doesn't attribute, it says that Rahab's husband was actually Joshua. That's that's the way Jews have have talked about her, at least since the second century A.D., that she was the the, uh, wife of Joshua and that she was one of the most beautiful women ever in the history of the world. She's considered within Judaism as one of the most amazing women who ever lived, even though 
She was a Canaanite prostitute. It's an amazing thing. In fact, they consider her um, conversions, great, her conversion to Judaism, greater than anybody else's. That they look at her as as possibly second only to Ruth in in that uh, conversion. That she is she's considered that important and that amazing a woman. They they consider her to be one of the most beautiful women that ever lived. That's that's how Jewish lore treats her. But they do say that she was married to Joshua. Here Matthew tells us something else. But there's no way he brings a random Rahab in. He's clearly talking about this person. And and I know that for two reasons. One is he wouldn't bring a random name Rahab person in. And second, that Rahab from Joshua two fits with all the other women that are in the genealogy in a couple of different ways. So we want to look at Joshua 2. Let's go back and take a look at Joshua 2 and see what's going on there. So what's happened is 30 days before this, um, Moses has died in the wilderness. Remember, he's not allowed to go in because he sent the 12 spies into the land. They came back, 10 of those spies, which again, I think presages the whole idea of the 10 tribes that are lost and the two tribes that are not lost in the, in the end because those 10 tribes go to form the northern kingdom and the two tribes stay down in the southern kingdom based in Jerusalem. The 10 tribes are taken off by the Assyrians into exile and, and are dispersed among the nations and they lose their faith. They lose their identity as Jews at that time. And so what we get now is is 30 days after Moses' death, because he's not allowed to go into the land, because he allowed the spies to discourage the people because they came back with a bad report of the land, that it was a great land. It was flowing with milk and honey. They brought back some of the produce in the land, which was huge. And then they said, but the people are too. This land is filled with giants, and we're going to get our clocks cleaned if we try and go in there. And the people were so discouraged, they wouldn't go, in spite of the fact that Joshua and Caleb said, no, let's go. Our God is with us. And then God pronounced judgment on that generation, and they were going to die in the wilderness. Anybody over 20 years of age was going to die in the wilderness, and Moses was not allowed to go in, not because of the, uh, the affair of the spies, but because he struck the rock when he was told to speak to the rock. So there we see that we have a problem, and and so that problem has been dealt with, and now we have Joshua, who God chose as the leader. He had been at Moses' side during the entire time in the wilderness, and now he's chosen to lead the people into the land and in the conquest of the land. First thing that he has to do is, once they cross the Jordan River, is, is that the men who had, been, who had been born in the wilderness had not been circumcised, and so they have to be circumcised in order to, to be safe. Remember the story of Moses coming back to Egypt to, to deliver the people. He's got his children with him. Well, he didn't circumcise his children while he was out there with Jethro, the Midianite priest. The Midianite priest does not mean priest of Yahweh. So he's a priest for some other god. And so he didn't sacrifice his children. Well, he's got to align himself completely with God's people in order to be the leader of the people. And so he's got to keep the covenant of circumcision if he's going to be the leader of God's people. Because remember, he was born and circumcised, but then he was raised in Pharaoh's household. And so circumcision was something Jews did. So he has to circumcise his children because God's going to kill him if he won't go back. Because in the same way, you see the, the angel of the Lord, of the Lord's army actually, meets Joshua as he begins to come into the land and, and confronts him. And Joshua says, whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? And, and he says, I'm on the Lord's side. 
So you got to make your choice right now. Is that who you're fighting for as well, Joshua? So that's exactly what's what's going on with that. It's very similar to the the situation with Moses and his children in the wilderness as he's going back into the to Egypt at God's behest to lead the people out of the land. So so we get a situation now where Joshua has taken over Moses' place. He is the leader of the people. He's, he's acknowledged by all the people to be the leader. And what does he do? What's the first thing that he does after they cross over the Jericho? What he says is, that, Jordan, I mean, what he says is, is that he sent two men secretly from Shittim, where they were, as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So what he's telegraphing there is is the first place we're going to go. The first place that's going to be taken in the conquest of the land is going to be the city of Jericho, and it's a fortified city. So he sends spies, but he learned a lesson from Moses. He only sent two, (laughs) and they, they were surely men that he could trust, men that he knew would handle this assignment better than the men who he had gone with before on the earlier mission to spy out the land. So he says, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not exactly what I expected to be that next sentence, right? Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So before I ever came up here to Asheville, we were down in Pauly's Island. I was serving on staff there at a a very large church in Pauly's Island, and I loved it. I loved everything about it, but I felt like God was calling me to come and do something different, do something new. We had people there who, who were members of the church, but who mostly lived in Asheville. And they wanted to talk about the possibility of planting an AMI church in Asheville. And so they said, all right, John, how about you? So I said, okay. And so I came up on a Wednesday night, and, and, and the, the goal was to meet with a group of people, whoever showed up, and see how that went. And to kind of get a feel for, is this a place where we could actually plant a church here in the next little bit? So I came up, did that, came back. We had staff meeting the next week with the clergy staff. And so um, my bishop, Chuck Murphy, is there. And he said, John, all right, so you went up to Asheville. Tell us. Give us a report. I said, well, I went up. I spent a couple of days with a prostitute. And everybody looked at him. What are you? What? I said, well, I was reading the book of Joshua. That's what I thought you did. I thought if you were sent somewhere to spy something out, you went and stayed with a prostitute a couple of days. I mean, it's just so weird that, that it would say that. I did not, by the way. That's not what I did at all. Um, I did come up and, and spy out the land to see if it was a good place to plant a church. So they come to this house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, again, in Jewish teaching, one of the things you need to understand about this is that they, they have a tendency to romanticize things, I think would be a good thing. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's the intention of romanticizing. I think what they want to do is explain why in the world these guys would have come to a prostitute. So that, that, it bothers them, right? So the, the thing they come up with is, is that she was, she was such a beautiful woman and had such a, a, a kind of a business that she would have known and met with and met um, in one way or another um, a, a lot of men. And they would have been important men. And the proof of that is she lives in the walls of the city, which means that she was somebody of some means. So they, they infer from that. There's more to it than that. And so probably she's, she's serving. She and her retinue are serving you know, sort of the, the leaders of other places who come to Jericho for trade and other reasons. And so it's possible then she probably has the inside scoop on a whole lot of stuff that they wouldn't be able to get somewhere else. 
They wouldn't be able to go directly somewhere and, and, and start asking questions because people would figure out pretty quickly, these are not us. Who are these people? What people are they? who are here, but they would be less conspicuous if they go and stay at the home of a prostitute because men traveling from out of town would do that. So that, that it seems like, I mean, once you hear the explanation, you begin to go, you know what, that does kind of make some sense that that's where they would go because they didn't want to attract attention to themselves in doing this. They didn't want the city to be in, a, in an uproar about it because they'd already had to deal with that with Balaam. They had to deal with it with Balaam because they were camped near Moab. And so the Moabites saw this Israelite encampment, and it's absolutely certain that the people of Jericho Jericho, had seen the Israelite encampment just over on the other side of the Jordan River. So in the same way that Balak, the, the king of Moab, was concerned about this Israelite encampment right next to his land, even though they weren't going to come there because that's not the land God had given them. So that's why he calls the prophet Balaam to come and prophesy against them in order that he can defeat them because he believes that Balaam's prophecy will come true, that he will bind God by what he says. And so they, they, they call for Balaam to come out, but God prevents him from prophesying against the Israelites as a way of protecting them, because if Balak hears Balaam prophesy against the Israelites, then he'll have confidence to go against the Israelites and to defeat them and destroy them. And God's not going to allow that to happen. And so Balaam is prevented by God from giving a bad prophecy about these people of Israel. So he protects them in that way. But in the same way, you could also say it's a great grace that God gave to Balak that he wouldn't allow Balaam to prophesy, because if he had prophesied against them and Balak had gone out based on that prophecy, then it wouldn't have gone well. Many, many Moabites would have died. But God preserved Balak and and preserved the Moabites. It was a great mercy and a grace that he gave to them that he didn't allow Balaam to prophesy and Balak then to go out in the confidence of that prophecy. So you can see the grace and the mercy there. And then we're going to meet a Moabite woman in a couple of days. Who is that Moabite woman? Well, that's Ruth. And so we're going to meet her in a couple of days and, and talk about her because she appears in the genealogy as well. And so you could say that maybe God was preventing all this in order that the Moabites be spared. God's God's goal was not to overthrow the Moabites. They were not in the land. They were outside the land God was giving to the people. So here they come. They come into Jericho, and so they want to fly under the radar in a way that, that prevents them from being killed while they come in and spy out the land because they already knew that the other people, the other nations around here are aware of these people who have been wandering seemingly in the wilderness for 40 years. We know they haven't been wandering. God's been leading them all the way with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But so they come and they lodged with Rahab at the house of the prostitute. And it's funny because people, a lot of scholars will try and, and, and soften this and they'll say, well, she's not a prostitute. She's an innkeeper. No, the word is harlot. I mean, it's pretty clear. There's no question that that it says exactly what it intends to say. She's not keeping the inn. There's more to it than that. And so it was told the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here to search out the land. So the word came, the word got to the king of Jericho that the men of Israel are here tonight to search out the land. 
And so the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. So the word already got back by whatever spies the king of Jericho had, the word got back to him that these men of Israel were in the land. They were in Jericho. And why were they there? To search out the land. So that he knew the whole thing. I mean, this reminds me so much, right, of Herod, when the wise men come to him and tell him that the king of the Jews has been born. The people of Jerusalem don't care. They tell him, oh, that, that would be in Bethlehem if, if what you're saying is true, and nobody goes with him. But then he goes to Herod, and Herod's deeply concerned about it. And the funny thing is is that, that they kind of reject him as a Jew because he's sort of a Jew in name only, right? So, so he's kind of rejected as a Jew, and yet he's the one who believes the testimony of the wise men, that the king is born, the king of the Jews. And so he sends and says, hey, just come back and let me know where he is, because and, and, he wants to kill him. And then what does he do? He kills all the children under two. And so Joseph and Mary and Jesus and the family have to flee, and they have to go to Egypt until after Herod dies. And so this reminds me of that situation, because you know exactly what the king of Jericho intends to do. If they bring them these spies to him, he's going to take action against those spies. And so that's exactly what happens. He sends to Rahab and says, hey, bring his men here. they've come to search out the land. He doesn't refer to them as men of Israel like the spies did. He just says, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house for they wanted to search out all the land. But the woman, Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. She knew they were in danger. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. So remember, he has just said, bring out the men who have come to you. And she said, I don't know where these men came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. They would close the gates of the city for protection at night. During the day, they would be open for people to come and go and trade, be brought into the city and out of the city. But at night, the gates would be brought up. The city would be protected in that way. And she said, when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where they went. Pursue them quickly for you'll overtake them. In other words, they're not far. You know, they haven't been gone long. Go ahead and send people out after them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So the the Jews are actually out on the other side of the Jordan. They haven't crossed over yet. And so what we've got is a situation where she says she lies on their behalf to protect these people and says, you send them out. And so what we're going to look at tomorrow is, why would she do that? Why would Rahab do that? So this woman, we know two things about her, right? We know that she's a prostitute, and we know that she's willing to lie to protect these men, and we don't know why she would want to do that. And then what we know is, is that she ends up in the line of Messiah. It's an amazing thing. The people God uses continue to be amazing. It reminds me so much of the woman at the well in John 4. The person most or least likely for Jesus to speak with and to reveal himself to, considering when they had just left Jerusalem, it says that he didn't entrust himself to anybody there. He wouldn't, which means that he wouldn't tell them that he was the Messiah. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of men. And yet, the very next scene is with this woman at the well, who's had multiple husbands and is now living with an, with a man who is not her husband, and to her, 
Jesus says, when she says, we know that a prophet like Moses will come, and when he does, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. He affirms that he is the coming of the one that's promised in the Torah by Moses, that another prophet like me will arise, and you are to listen to him when he comes. Jesus says, I'm that guy, because that's the Messiah that the Samaritans are looking for. They're not looking for somebody in the line of David. They're looking for somebody in the line of Moses, and to her, he says this. And so God continues all through history to use the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. And I'm thankful for that because otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here behind this microphone teaching today. We'll look further at the story of Rahab and find out a little bit more about her and why it is that she wanted to protect these men and what the rest of the story is tomorrow.